Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, a little stream of podcasts that comes trickling down the rocks. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talk with Christopher Williams, the chief distiller at the Copperseed Distillery in New Paltz. I've known him since they opened about seven years ago. I profiled them as part of a survey of distilling in the Hudson Valley back then and came back subsequently for a dedicated long-form piece on them a few years in. And they keep moving from strength to strength. I've admired his intelligence, work ethic, and above all, booze. Since we met, you can find him at coppersea.com. Copper Sea Distilling on Instagram. Copper Sea is, to my mind, as good an example as you'll find of the level of accomplishment that local and regional economies are now supporting all over the country. You have a whole generation of people who grew up with access via the internet and today's 21st century world of easy transportation and communication with world-class tastes and vast databases at their fingertips and the ability to form communities and correspond with people all around the world on the basis of shared passion and intellect and uh, ability, who have then settled either where they grew up or somewhere else. But they're bringing an old-world approach, which is the notion that a region or a village even can produce something unique and world-class that is by definition not achievable anywhere else. He came with most of what they have on offer right now for me to taste, um, and we worked our way through that while we talked. This is a show that will appeal to whiskey geeks and distillers and anybody, I think, who's interested in terroir and regionality and the Hudson Valley and uh, listening to someone smart and talented talk about uh, and really geek out about the thing that has become the defining passion of his life. So here's me and Christopher Williams talking in my dining room and tasting some booze. Quite a lineup you have now. Yeah, we tried to reduce skew. So what we what we what we got going on is mostly a um, kind of a two expression shop or like a two mash bill sort of thing going on. Well, three really, but then you know we're trying to move towards more of a, that sort of Kentucky or Scottish sort of model where you've got one or two core mash bills or expressions, but then you're going to create different iterations of them, different age, you know, statements or um, barrel finishes, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And are you, I know you're obviously, you're having the bourbon barrels built here in New York. Are you still also getting old wine barrels and things for finishing with different We use, or? mostly now we've, now we've tapered off from, uh, we, were, we were using wine barrels to 
age for the primary aging of our corn whiskey. Mm-hmm. So we were using a variety of barrels early on. Wine barrels, and then our ex-bourbon, rye, and brandy barrels. Because we were doing, at one point we were doing a peach brandy, and we were doing the pear brandy, which we still do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what we wound up doing, just because we started having more access to our own bourbon and rye barrels, is we really just locked in the corn whiskey. Because corn whiskey is the only category, the only major whiskey category in America where... You can age it. Actually, you can't age it in new charred oak. You can only age it in new uncharred oak or second-use barrels of any kind. So we have another product. I didn't bring it. Um, our Springtown straight whiskey. We had a corn whiskey. Should I wait until you're? No, we're going. Oh, this you're is, recording. Yeah, no, this is, I just <laughs> kind of no. I just get going. We had another pro. We have another product called the um, the Springtown Straight Whiskey, which is sort of our tavern blend, mm-hmm. and that is a blend of our straight corn, bourbon, and rye whiskeys. So all straight whiskeys that we, the core of it is the corn whiskey. We used to sell the corn whiskey by itself as a six month old product, and it wasn't doing well. It was, it was a very nice liquid, um, you know, it had its own sort of quality, uh, but wasn't really doing very well in the market. Um, I think just corn whiskey as a category, the customer either just doesn't get it or something about corn whiskey. They just, I don't know, maybe it, it, it doesn't read correctly to them. So it wasn't doing very well. So we pulled it and we kept on making corn whiskey. <laughs> then we were like, well, what do we do with all this corn whiskey? So we weren't selling it, weren't selling it. And then before we knew it, it was two, you know, it was two years old. So it qualified as straight corn whiskey. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneous with that, we had started getting, we had started to think about, or we were listening to requests in the market, especially from on-premise accounts, bars, restaurants, where we had real advocates for the spirits that we were doing, our straight bourbon and rye, but who couldn't justify building a cocktail on it at our price point. Mm. They wanted the character of it, but they couldn't afford it in the bar. People would bring the stuff home and sure. make cocktails at home with it, right. but they couldn't put it on well, a menu. Because the markup at a restaurant. It exactly, just right. And if you can, you know, I mean, especially if you're, if you're not getting too culinary about it or you're really not looking to tweak things at a fine level, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with an old Overholt Manhattan. No, nothing at all. A, a Manhattan with our rise is significantly more lush and beautiful, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, will the customer at your average, um, you know, even even a pretty high-end cocktail bar really make that distinction for something as simple as Manhattan? I don't know. Maybe they will, but I but guess... will the, they pay the extra? Will they pay the extra yeah. for that as yeah. opposed... So, uh, so, yeah. So what we did was we had, we had this corn whiskey and... The model for making the corn whiskey was already fairly affordable because the barrels themselves are not cheap, you know, no. when they're new. And we can only use them once for bourbon and rye. So filling them with corn whiskey to get another second or even third use out of them if we want to, uh, letting it age for two years in those. And the corn whiskey itself, you know, we do all our own malting yes. on the floor of the distillery. So all the malt on any of our whiskeys all coming from our malt floor. Mm-hmm. Corn whiskey is, uh, by law, has to be a minimum of 80% corn. So we do that, 80% corn, 20% malted barley. Of course, that malt's coming from our malt floor. So that means it's not a, that's a small amount of malt for us. 
and the corn is generally a more affordable grain regardless, also easier mm-hmm. to deal with, just yeah. logistically a little easier. So those two factors, the fact that it was corn whiskey and we were getting a second use out of the barrel, allowed us to create a product that had a lot of the character of our main lineup but was way cheaper mm-hmm. to produce and therefore to sell. That's, well, it's super efficient. Right. So the, so the Springtown Straight Whiskey is a blend of 70% straight corn whiskey and then into that, we are blending roughly, you know, 15 and 15 percent uh, of our bourbon and rye whiskey, mm-hmm. our straight bourbon and rye whiskey. So mm-hmm. you're getting character of those on top of the slightly more mild, mm-hmm. you know, base. And, honestly, and it's very mixable. And yeah, also exactly. Simple. I mean, it is that sort of thing is is better for mixing anyway, because I mean, I remember like I had last night, I just had a, a little glass of the um, the ragtime rye because that's one of your um New York State Heritage Empire Rise. Empire Rise, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's delicious. But I had it, you know, straight in my good Glencairn glass with one small ice cube, mm-hmm. um, which I let kind of melt a little bit because I love it when it's it just, to me, it just opens up when it just dilutes a tiny bit. And it's mm-hmm. true for scotch. It's true to me for any good whiskey um, for the most part. And that, you know, I mean, it's a sipping whiskey. It's something that you want to enjoy and kind of like roll around in your mouth a little and, and spend some time with. Um, and the minute you start adding lemon and bitters and, you know, whatever else, you're, you're, I mean, it can still be delicious, but you're, you're, you're diluting with other flavors and making, it's a different experience. And so for a handmade product in general, the finer it is, the more I want to have it kind of unadulterated. So Yeah, I, and I agree. And I, I am certainly making our whiskeys to be enjoyed that way. That's my intention. They should be able to stand on their own. That is not to say you're not welcome to enjoy well, them of course, in no, any way that you do what like. They want. And especially when it comes to the classic cocktails, like for me, like the big, you know, the big three are, you know, the Manhattan, the old fashioned Mm -hmm. and the martini, Mm -hmm. you know, and each of these cocktails, to my mind, when they're, when they're, they're best, they're about accentuating the qualities of the base spirit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for an old fashioned, it's going to be bourbon, for Manhattan, it's going to be rye and for the martini, it's going to be the gin. Mm -hmm. And, um... You know, that's why you get that sort of old bromide from people who are like, yeah, I want a dry martini. And when I mean dry, I mean just show it the vermouth. Yeah, yeah. You know, put the vermouth bottle next to the gin right. bottle. You know, and that's the point. It's like the, the vermouth, the bitters, all those things are really just supposed to be there to make the rest of, you know, the, the main make spirit it pop. pop. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Um, so to that, to that extent, I, I certainly enjoy the classic cocktails. But um, I think, yeah. yeah. I like a boulevardier too, especially a kind of like Negroni is more of a summer jam to me, and I like to switch mm-hmm. over to the brown liquor for the cooler months. Right. I think it's a great drink. I yeah, I'm, a, I'm. I feel like I should be ashamed to admit I don't make gin, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not even a huge gin fan. I mean, it's yeah. fine. Yeah, but um, I consider the Negroni to be the single greatest cocktail it's on so the face good. of the earth. It's so you know good. better it's than any whiskey. So cocktail. good that my 14 year old. I'll say it. I make whiskey, yeah. and I think that the, that the Negroni, a gin cocktail is by far the only cocktail worth drinking. <laughs> there, there really is a, some kind of magic to it. It's the yeah. balance of the bitter and the sweet, and it's got all this herbal complexity, and it really is a special yeah. thing. Well, I was pondering it last year when I really kind of, last summer, it's my summer drink, for mm-hmm. sure, and I was just like, well, wait a minute, I'm thinking about this. Like, it's really, it's basically three categorical, uh, you know, spirits, you know, beverages and all of them share this commonality. They're all uh, deeply infused with herbs, mm-hmm. you know. So you've got 
three different spirits. Really, basically, just like perf- it's perfumery. Yeah. In a in a in a drink. Yeah. Um, so it's really very you know, the alchemical sort of mysteries of the Negroni. Right? Yeah. Pretty yeah, fascinating yeah, yeah. too. So um, you can you can kind of dip into these at your leisure if you want to make yeah, a point well, about something. Yeah. But uh, something I wanted to talk about just um, now that we've kind of covered the present a little bit is. Uh, it's sort of how you got here, because you, you came up through a different kind of schooling and didn't plan on doing this, I think, for some time, right? And you're not from this part of the world? Well, I, I'm from a New Yorker. You are? Okay. Yeah. But you, went to, you were in Chicago for some... Yeah, I bounced time. around okay. after... after I, I went to college in D.C., and then I lived there. And you there studied and journalism or writing? I became a journalist just sort of by chance after college. Uh, I, I, uh, I was a history major, and I wrote... Uh, I was an American studies major. So I've always been interested. It's interesting. But I was both not remotely prepared for or, or on a trajectory to make a heritage methods uh, distillery. And yet somehow it all does make sense given my sort of uh, my intellectual upbringing or, or my intellectual yeah. and, and academic development. So I studied American studies uh-huh. at George Washington University, which uh-huh. is a very big deal, you know, in the in the uh, in the scope of that particular field of study. Yeah, there's a there's a few sort of schools. That, it's a really good department. It's a good department. Um, actually, I probably wouldn't even got into that program. It was like two years after I left that program, that you had to actually start applying for it. Mm. Um, and I was never a good enough student, probably, that I, I would have gotten into it. But uh, you know, my interests from very early on. Uh, and to this day, one of my main interests in, in life is is a study of sort of the idiosyncratic mm-hmm. aspects of American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, just those weird little, it's funny, we're in Saugerties, not far from uh, Big Pink, mm-hmm. where um, Bob Dylan lived yeah. and, and uh, recorded his famous, the famous basement tapes, yeah. you know, which Grail Marcus, the writer, um, wrote a book about called, I think originally it was called Invisible Republic. Mm-hmm. And then I think it got, I think the name, they changed the name for the big, there's like a line in that book where he refers to the old weird America. Yeah, and which, I think they, which is I, especially funny because there were only two Americans in that whole basement. Everyone else was from Canada. Oh, it's Leave right, on the man, and right. the only Americans. That's right, they, yeah, that's funny, I never thought about that. But yeah, you know, so that's always been, you know, it's uh, the concept is... Um, Expounded on by by Grell Marcus specifically to talk about the roots of American music and 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 culture at large. But yeah, I'm I'm interested in these sort of strange byways of American history and culture that um, you know are very very strange. Mm-hmm. But when you when you follow the thread of them, they lead to the things that we think of as very common in American culture now. So we think about for example, whiskey, mm-hmm. you know, which is pretty ubiquitous in yeah. American culture, you know, and uh, at the same time, it's, 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 it's led to a point where it's also very homogenous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like it's been so well-defined that we really only think of it as this one thing. But just like American music, you know, to get to what we think of now as, you know, blues or jazz or country yeah you, you go back far enough and those distinctions were were not clear no not at all and and very often things were discarded that in and of themselves were, were fascinating and wonderful it's and one beautiful. of the great things about new orleans to me is that it still <clears throat> keeps 
all those weird vestigial musical traits and still has them kind of mixed up and you can still hear multiple traditions coexisting on stage at once right. in, in, in the space of one song sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and most other places, like you said, and especially the way radio is marketed and records have been sold, that everything has to be mashed down into one category and kind of hammered flat, which is not so exciting. Well, and I think it, it speaks to people's, especially in the, in the modern era, we've got so much competing for your attention. People need like these handles to grab mm-hmm. things by, and I, I get that. And to some extent, that's why Empire Eye was developed, you know, as part of the motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we were saying uh, my trajectory to making Heritage Methods Whiskey. So yeah, I studied American, American Studies, uh, and I had done a, um, a thesis on bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And on bluegrass in the D.C., Northern Virginia sort of nexus, a history of, of it there, which mm-hmm. was, it was very big in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And that turned into an opportunity to write that up as a cover story for the, the regional newspaper in D.C., the, uh, the sort of free weekly, the Washington mm-hmm. City paper. Mm-hmm. And that turned into, you know, a job. You know, they were like, oh, you wrote this great cover story for us. You know, it got turned into a cover story. And they were like, you can write. You want to write some stories? You know, and then I wound up doing, you know, city beat reporting and culture writing for, for that publication and mm-hmm. then for other publications. And then, you know, 10 years later, I was like, wait a minute. How did I become a journalist? Yeah. You know, I was a journalist you there. The like you, you didn't study journalism. You were doing city beat reporting just Not as, at a, all. as yeah. a historian writer. And then wound up. You know, I wrote for a variety of other newspapers and, and publications and finished out my career as a journalist, a financial journalist, of all things. Hmm. Um, but yeah, at one point I'd even, I think five years into this career, as it were, as it was, um, I was like, oh, maybe I should get a degree, maybe I should get a master's degree in journalism. So I popped over to the, the J School at the University of Maryland, showed them my resume. I was like, yeah, I should get a degree, right? And they were like, why would you get a degree? You're already in. Yeah, you already did this. It's like yeah. pe- people only get this degree to like get contacts, really. It's mm-hmm. not, there's no reason. You're yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. But yeah, then I was like, you know what? I don't really want to do this. Yeah. So the only other thing that I had done <clears throat> with any consistency since childhood was literally since I, well, since ni- I was 19, uh, was homebrewing. Mm. I got my first homebrew kit when I was 19. Um, and uh, just developed this interest in beer. And this was... Pretty early on. So you're doing in the, this in your parents' garage or basement? I or was doing this in my kitchen, my kitchen. Yeah, my mother for you know was indulgent enough to let me uh, do this. We'd actually I, I learned to like beer just on the fly out and about one day with my mother, uh, home from college, um, my first year. We stopped in to get lunch, just happened to be a brew pub in Suffern, New York. Mm-hmm. And I think it's gone now. Uh, and the beer probably wasn't even that good. If I were to look at it today as yeah. an adult, uh, yeah. you know, with a, with a much more refined palate, sure. so to speak, uh, I probably would have, t- would have turned my nose up at it. But then, you know, my mother ordered a stout, which she didn't even know what she was ordering. But yeah. We were in a brew pub yeah. and we were just getting lunch. And um, she took two sips of it, was not interested. And I was like, can I try some? So she like, on the slice, like, sure, take a sip. So I took a sip and I was just instantly... You know, I was like, yes, mm-hmm. that's for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the the brewer was there at the at the brew pub, mm. um, talked to me, and he said, oh yeah, you know, you can get a homebrew kit, and he told me where the local homebrew place was, and mm-hmm. and I was hooked, and so I was making beer. I did it through college, did it in my mm-hmm. dorm room, got my friends involved, um, 
And then in D.C. at the time, there was this bar called the Brick Skeller. I remember that. Which I don't know. Yeah. had like a thousand kinds of beer. Yeah, it was the only place. So this was, you got to remember, this was before you could just go into a, into a gas station, you know, beer cave. Yeah. <laughs> and, and have, you know, 50 different craft brewery options yeah, no, in front of you. Yeah, cases of Coors. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, this was this one place in D.C. It had been around since the 70s. And I think it's just because D.C. is a diplomatic city. It was in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. You have people from all over the world. And it was a place where I guess, you know, international diplomats could go with colleagues and kind of flex nuts about, like, who's got the best beer. And they could actually pull it out there because right. they had this giant cellar and they'd have dusty bottles from every country in the right, world right. and of course that included a pretty fair share of things from Britain from Germany from Belgium yeah. um, you know I think I even had like my first saisons there mm-hmm. and beer to guards and stuff like that so that was where I discovered beer you know before that was even really a no, that was an incredible resource my brother went thing. to GW actually oh, sorry. and uh, so he took me there at some point when I went down to visit him mm-hmm. and uh, at the time I was impressed but yeah in retrospect it really was like an extraordinary thing to have back then mm-hmm. uh, just have access to all that like you said now it's it's a very different story you yeah. can go to just beer world you know in Kingston and they've got you know, right. I don't know at least that many bottles right of course we've kind of come full circle too because even though there are 40 different craft breweries represented in these gas stations and bars. 80% of what they're offering at those gas stations and bars is IPAs. Mm-hmm. It's like, go find a porter or a stout at, you know, almost any of those bars. But that's another story. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of weird. It's like we went from the situation in which there was really only one style of beer available from mm-hmm. three major companies. And now there's really only one style of beer available from hundreds and hundreds of companies. Yeah. <laughs> but people like people Americans like love, they, they learn to it's, love IPAs. And that's you know, I mean, I like them when they get more, you know, bitter. Um, I don't love the super tropical fruit ones, you right. know, but you know, I like bitter way. beer, but I like, yeah, I mean, I'm more of a wine guy anyway, but I do mm-hmm. enjoy beer. My experience in general with beer is that the first sip is better than the last and wine is the inverse of that. And that's more interesting to me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and, in, and in whiskey too, you know, the evolution of the, yeah, it opens up, it goes places. Yeah. Beer, it beer for me tends not to, there are exceptions, mm-hmm. but in general, I find that beer, is most, you know, delicious at the beginning. So that's just my thing. All right, so this is the... So yeah, I just poured you the Excelsior bourbon, which is um, our high rye bourbon, 60% corn, 30% rye, 10% malted barley. We use only open pollinated heirloom varieties of grain, and it's 100% Hudson Valley grain. And this is three years... This is two. two. This is a okay. stated two-year-old. Although, oh, but you just you just released that special Father's Day limited edition. That's our spread. single barrel rye that program. Yeah, okay, it's a different bottle. one. But we'll, in a couple of weeks, we'll be doing our first. We'll be putting out our first bottled and bond version of this spirit. Yeah, oh, it's delicious, man. Congratulations. I mean, it's really, it's really special. It's so floral too. It's so. I mean, there's. So, I, look, I'm not a I'm not a whiskey expert, and I'm certainly not a bourbon expert, but. Um, so many of them lean so hard on that just caramel hmm. above all else. It's sort of the, this big candy core around which maybe float some other flavors. Hmm. This is this is very different from that. This is just it's so beautiful and open and sunny and herbal and yeah, I mean it's really special. You know, the car- well so there's a couple of different things going on there. So you know, I, I I'll preface this by saying I learned to love whiskey and bourbon specifically. Uh, drinking the whiskeys of the large 
industrial distilleries mm-hmm. um, and don't turn my nose up at them by any stretch. But I will say that, you know, as we were saying earlier, the this sort of uh, inexorable flow toward um, easy compartmentalization and categorization of things, um, a handle that people can grab things by, you know, whether it's IPAs, you know, when we talk about craft beer, yeah. we can say IPAs, you know, when we're talking about bourbon or we're talking about whiskey in America, we can talk about bourbon and that bourbon became more and more uh, alike from bottling to bottling and distillery to distillery than I think more meaningfully different. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and isn't it true also that a lot of the base spirit in those is made at one giant place in Indiana or something, and people are buying in bulk from there? And then, well, I think we're talking more about when we talk. Yeah, you're talking about MGPI, which is a um, yeah, it's the old Seagram's Distillery in in, uh, in southern Indiana, and they make uh, they make a variety of whiskeys that they do sell out to be sold under a variety of different brands, but that's a relatively modern, like a newer mm-hmm. sort of phenomena. And um, what I'm talking about is there were, you know, it's similar to that or, or in that, in, along those lines, we do have most of the whiskey in America coming out of one of like half a dozen major distilleries. Mm-hmm. You know, they represent most of the major brands on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And um, they're using predominantly the same materials. You know, they're using commodity corn Mm -hmm. and other grains and industrially produced malt when they're even using malt because they're also very often using an industrial enzyme to to do their conversion, which is legal in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's not legal in in Scotland, but it it also doesn't have to be disclosed as an ingredient. And they don't because it it really runs counter to the... um, you know, to the marketing yeah, well, effort. Yeah, the which frontier like, spirit in people's minds. Exactly. Everybody wants, you know, everybody wants to sort of associate bourbon with this sort of rugged individual and small-scale little cabin, you know, still sort of sort of set up. But mm-hmm. the reality is it hasn't been like that for a long time. And for a lot of these major distilleries, it never was like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, the result is, you know, you have an industrialized process making use of, you know, number two yellow dent Monsanto Roundup Ready corn from the major corn producers of, of the Midwest, major malt producers of the Midwest making the malt, uh, and then you're using industrial enzyme and you're using fairly powerful and efficient yeast strains. And all of this is designed to make a product that is... Um, very accessible, it needs to be, to produce as much as you're producing. And then, and then also to produce a product that you can make a lot of mm-hmm. and, and make very profitable because of the scale that you're producing it. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's, a fun, it's delicious whiskey. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that has led to, the, you know, to that sort of caramel bomb that you're talking about. Um, in addition to other practices. Like, for example, the reason why we associate very specific... Uh, and almost you know pretty ubiquitous flavors with American bourbon is the barrel entry proof that it's going into these right. new charred oak barrels. You know the legal maximum is 125 proof, and that's where almost every distiller yeah. goes in. And you go in much lower. You're about just north of 100, right? We go into 105 across the board, which is a traditional practice. Right. And and the downside to us is that we use more barrels, mm-hmm. which again are, are an expensive item. 
Well, you're, uh, you're diluting much, much less then. You're diluting less when you go into the bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just, yeah, to, to do some quick sort of back of the napkin math, you yeah. know, if you're a big distillery, typically what you're doing, one of the big distilleries in Kentucky, say Buffalo Trace or Jim Beam, mm-hmm. you're going into the barrel at 125 proof, which is the legal maximum. Mm-hmm. Then you're going into the bottle once you harvest that barrel. Uh, you're going to the bottle at the legal minimum, which is 80 proof, mm-hmm. you know, 40% ABV. Yeah. So in order to do that, you're adding 45, right? 45 proof degrees of flavorless water, which yeah. of course costs the distillery nothing. Yeah. So you're, you're, you are, you're diluting, you're reducing the amount of flavor, the amount of whiskey mm-hmm. that you're putting into the bottle. Um, and when I say the amount of whiskey, I mean... The amount of whiskey that you pulled out of the out of the barrel. Mm-hmm. There's less of that in every bottle because yeah. of the amount of water you're putting in there. Yeah. And, of course, you're diluting the flavor yeah. as a result. But if you're going in as we do at 105 and you're going into the bottle as we do at 96, yeah, a very, very little. there's only nine proof degrees of water yeah. we're putting in there. Well, and, that, and that addition exists because adding a little water in does kind of like it reintroduces some minerality. You know, it gives you a little bit more, you know, it adds something to the mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. It opens up the spirit a little bit. Definitely. But the difference between nine proof degrees and 45 proof That's, degrees is manifest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But also, I remember, um, well, is it, is it also not true that when you are going into the barrel at a lower proof that you get more water-soluble flavor compounds out of the oak? And so you end up with a different character imparted by the wood as a result of that. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, that's why, that's a major reason I believe that pre-prohibition whiskeys taste so different mm-hmm. to uh, to modern whiskeys. To say nothing of just the fact that they were less diluted. Mm-hmm. They were eliciting entirely different organic compounds out of the oak because, yeah, as you say, water and ethanol react in their own unique ways with the compounds in the oak. So the caramel you're talking about, that's a major, that's coming from major ethanol-soluble compounds in the oak mm-hmm. um, and, and some of the other flavors we associate with, uh, with bourbon, for example, like coconut or mm-hmm. tropical fruit. Yeah. Um, those are all associated with ethanol-soluble compounds, which are extracted at a higher percentage. Again, those are great. And if you love those flavors, sure. then you'd sure love high uh, barrel entry-proof whiskeys, and you should continue to seek them out. Mm-hmm. But if you want to actually branch out into a whiskey that uh, doesn't always telecast those specific notes very aggressively and you want to try to get some red fruit notes and dark fruit notes mm-hmm. uh, out of your out of your oak then you need to look to lower barrel proof whiskies and that's what whiskies tasted like in the pre-prohibition era i remember when i was there uh, last time or one of those times when i was when i was writing that thing about you guys um you poured me a little taste of an old granddad from decades ago mm-hmm. and then one from a bottle that you picked up recently Mm-hmm. Because they had changed their entry proof, I think, dramatically in the interim. And it really was a different drink. It was completely like the, the old one was just it had all this rich detail and nuance. And the new one was just sort of almost yeah. like a cartoon, like a two-dimensional cutout of the, you know. Well, I mean, I think there were probably other things that happened with that brand. Almost and, certainly. And I, don't, uh, I, I don't know the back the, yeah. the, but the backstory on it. Stark but, yeah, yeah. The low barrel entry proof whiskeys just taste 100%. Different. It's mm-hmm. almost a different, just a different spirit in so mm-hmm. many ways, and um, it's you know, but it's it's not an economical uh, no, it's decision, it's you know. Especially it's like for us, it's not. It's you know, at our at our level, the difference between going in at one twenty five and one oh five might not make as big a difference as it's going to make 
to a distillery like Jim Beam, mm-hmm. where we're talking about just millions of barrels. You know, it's you know hundreds of thousands yeah. of barrels. A very different line item, because you got to remember the fact that for every you know if they're going in at one twenty five, and let's just say for easy math, we were going in at a hundred. Yeah. You know that means that. For every four barrels they fill, this math might not be right, but it's close. That means that for every four barrels they're filling with whiskey, I'm filling five barrels. Mm-hmm. I believe yeah. that's accurate. And, and I was uh, an art major, so that's probably worse than history <laughs> when it comes to math. You know, and so for me, you know, with my, you know, a couple hundred barrels a year sort of production, mm-hmm. uh, that's not necessarily going to move the needle in a huge way financially for us. I mean, we're a small business, so every yeah. bit helps. Yeah. But when you're when, when a bean counter is looking at the line item for Jim Beam and realizing mm-hmm. that that many barrels, you know, they and they actually do lobby pretty regularly. The, the Kentucky Whiskey Association, uh, I believe, lobbies consistently to try to get that number pushed up even higher. Really? I think they would go to 135 if they could because mm-hmm. it would make a significant impact on their uh, on their finances, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and since they've already pushed the needle so far in the direction of high, you know, high barrel proof flavor profile, um, it's really just going to create a whiskey that maybe accentuates. I, I actually don't even know what 135 uh, <laughs> would taste like out of the barrel. Um, you know, but it's a, it's a fair guess that they do. Mm-hmm. And if they want to do it, they probably think it's just going to accentuate the qualities that, that they think the American mm-hmm. drinking public comes to expect from bourbon. Yeah. Um, so then maybe it would be a good idea for them, but, uh, the, um, the, the, the downside is you're just pushing the pendulum further and further in one direction of flavor right. with, and, and, and reducing further and further the differentiation that can, you know, the, the fun things about whiskey. Cause I, I don't, you know, maybe it's just that I don't have as advanced a palate as some people, but sometimes I'm just, I don't see a lot of the differences that people are seeing. It's like, I'm just tasting a lot of caramel here, guys. Yeah. Tastes like good bourbon. I'm kind of in that same But boat. the difference between, you know, the Knob Creek and this other bottling or, you know, for example, Booker's or any of the other expressions that are coming out of, you know, it's the same liquid, just different age expressions, different barrel, you know, different bottle proofs in some cases, you know, little tweaks, but literally the same liquid, you know, not initially made to be a different product. Um, just picked, selected. The barrels are selected for that purpose. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just Jim Beam and a different proof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not seeing the. I, you know, to me, I just did a radio segment with with um, Michael Drapkin from the Kingston Wine Company. You know, who specializes in um, the natural end of the wine spectrum, and, mm-hmm. and which you know is almost by definition a handmade, small batch, you know, hand farmed product, mm-hmm. um, and. Some of those things, um, given the lack of intervention, some of those can get, you know, a little strange and sweaty and kombucha-y and not particularly interesting Mm -hmm. from a wine point of view. Um, But when they're well done, they're more different from each other um, in ways that are really kind of eye-opening and inspirational and educational and, like you said, fun. And those differences that, you know, the diversity of of expressions within even a small (laughs) geographic area, that's like what my the wine geek inside me gets all jazzed about mm-hmm. as opposed to like oh you know the the sort of you know the robert parker model of which is sort of like the the, the large bourbon model of like going for these very candied very sweet kind of mm-hmm. you know it's sort of like the monoculture they're grown from um 
there's a sameness to it, and I'm I'm kind of with you on that. I'm I'm interested in differences. I'm interested in things that make yeah. me say, oh wow, I'm, this is this is you know you can get. I love the way that that almost kind of like arugula peppery rye thing just kind of slides in mm-hmm. on the finish of this one. Yeah, well, it's super high rye, and yeah. um, it's also super high corn. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's interesting because most you know, bourbon by law has to be a minimum of fifty one percent corn, and mm-hmm. most of the bourbon producers in Kentucky, you know, which you know I would not argue for one minute that Kentucky is not bourbon's ancestral home. It sure. is, you know, and, and they do it, you know, in the style that they do it very well. Um, but it is America's whiskey, so we make some. But we wanted it to be as New York. We wanted it all to have sort of nods to New York for mm-hmm. our bourbons. So that's why it's a high rye because, mm-hmm. you know, New York really was more of a rye producing state um, initially, not really a bourbon style whiskey state. Mm-hmm. So it's high rye, but it's also high corn because most of those Kentucky distilleries don't really stray too far from that legal minimum. You know, and then they're using rye or wheat as the flavor grain because corn as the base substrate for a distillate doesn't really have a lot of oomph to it. So mm-hmm. you need something to punch it up, which is also why the oak is so fundamental to the flavor of bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike a, like a rye whiskey, where the rye is going to be very aggressive and grain forward and not really get supplanted by the oak. The mm-hmm. oak becomes more of a... Of a, of a um, you know, a, a through line or a, or a, you know, a, mel- a melody on top of a bass line or uh, right. one of those I, kinds I of analogies. But the, no, the right, right bourbon, is really assertive. Yeah. yeah, with bourbon, you know, the, the oak really is the, is the star, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, and everything else is serving that purpose. The mm-hmm. grain becomes second fiddle to the mm-hmm. oak. But, uh, but yeah, so we have, but we actually use a lot more corn and we're using open pollinated heirloom varieties in an effort to really actually try to get some corny character mm-hmm. into it. So our stuff is a lot more polenta-y, I think. It's got that sort of corn backbone mm-hmm. um, while also having that rye spice. Mm-hmm. And we're using New York oak um, because, again, for the bourbon, we wanted, if the star of the show was the oak. Yeah. And our thing at Coppersy is yeah. for is for our whiskeys to really speak to New York terroir. Mm-hmm. We agreed early on that we were only going to make a bourbon if we could source New York State white oak. And, and how are you noticing, um, just from presumably the, from the R and D stages and, and the extensive tastings that you've done, how are you noticing our Adirondack oak as being distinct from the Ozark oak that makes up pretty much all the other cooperage? I think that New York oak or Northeastern oak in general shares uh, the main thing that Northeastern oak demonstrates is stress. Mm-hmm. So the reason why, again, all, all these things that we sort of, the baseline understanding we have of American whiskey all comes, you know, in the modern era, all comes from industrial distilleries. And which is why it's sort of, you always have to kind of make sure you're keeping that in mind when you're making these comparisons because an industrial distillery by definition is interested in industry. Yeah. And so its decisions are not necessarily based on what's going to make the most interesting product um, or the most delicious product even because that would require uh, more chances of idiosyncratic results. Right. Um, their interest is in the bottom line and they're going to, reach the bottom line by making, uh, they're going to reach a higher bottom line by making, by, by moving out of inefficiencies in the process. So the reason why all the oak for American whiskey making comes from Minnesota, Missouri, Arkansas, that Ozark sort of band, is because that's where oak loves to grow. It mm-hmm. grows there very aggressively. Uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of competition. The, the, the climate is correct. The, the soil is correct. So a hundred-year-old mature oak tree from that region is a huge tree. 
giant, very even limbing, mm -hmm. grows really tall. It doesn't have to compete with the understory uh, because it's growing so tall. It's, it's, fo it's focused on growth. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Northeast... We have rockier soils. We're not nice and flat. Mm -hmm. The Much we got colder winters, colder winters yeah. and we still have these hot summers. And sometimes it'll be droughty. It's just much more erratic mm -hmm. climate. So a hundred-year-old mature oak tree in New York or Vermont or Maine or something like that is going to be half the size. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be craggly and weird. It's not going to be as efficient for quarter sawing into oak staves. Yeah, you're not going to be able to make as much use of the tree. Mm -hmm. Uneven limbing. Um, but what do we know about stressed grapevines? Yeah, exactly. I you was know. just thinking Piedmont, yeah. Burgundy. They're right? going to create it's... much more concentration of flavors because they're not concerned with growth. They're concerned with energy retention. Mm -hmm. And the way that an oak tree retains energy is the storage of sugars, wood sugars. Mm -hmm. And that's going to translate into when you, when you make that into a barrel now and char the interior of it, those wood sugars are going to get caramelized. You're just going to have much more of a concentration of them. Um, so I think that New York oak... You know, it's still Quercus alba. It's the same species mm -hmm. that that we would be getting from the from the um, from the Midwest, but um, it just dials everything up to eleven a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, it's just got a lot more of that stuff. Caramel, you know, all the things that you would associate with conventional oak. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it also has the potential to offer an even more extended aging. I actually don't like. Uh, ex extended aging of American spirit styles mm -hmm. like rye or bourbon. Uh, I think 8 to 12 is about as much oak as as they can stand. Mm -hmm. Because, again, we're not Scotland here. Right. We're, we're, you know... Especially, and they're using mostly French oak in Scotland? Well, no, they're using American oak, but Scotland has got a... It's got a, a fairly con consistent and temperate climate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... It's like 73 degrees and damp all year. <laughs> so... You can let, and they're also not using brand new mm -hmm. charred oak. You know, right, they're typically right. using second use bourbon oak or some other kind of, you know, or third or fourth use, you know, mm -hmm. uh, oak sometimes. So it can camp out there a lot longer. Exactly. I mean, a 40 year old Scotch whiskey in second or third use barrels in a 70 degree and wet climate is a lot different than, and of course, it is, you know, very often we're talking about a single malt Scotch where you've got an aggressive, again, an aggressive grain forward grain that we're talking about. We're talking mm -hmm. about malted barley. Mm -hmm. That, as opposed to taking a very neutral flavored grain like corn and mm -hmm. putting it in a brand new charred oak barrel, you can't put that in a barrel for 30 or 40 years yeah. and expect anything other than just like, just very tannic, mm -hmm. overly woody spirit to emerge. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that there are people who insist that that's good and that they like it, and sure. Um, but not my cup of tea. Yeah, because uh, this is so balanced. I mean, it's really like it's it's got a lot of information, but it's not leaning too far in any direction. Which I, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's. It's not to say that this couldn't. I mean, we we've got a four year old version of this coming out. Mm -hmm. All of our whiskeys right now, our main line of whiskeys are all they're all straight whiskeys, which means they're a minimum of two years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say that I would. I'm not looking forward to seeing these at more advanced ages, but um, you know, two years was where we were sort of camped out in our mind about like where we where we would start well and you know also, and from an economic point of view as a small business you need to turn over inventory you can't just sit on this stuff indefinitely because you need to move product that's true but that's also always been sort of a cynical in my mind it's always been a cynical approach to doing whiskey in my it's like we see so you gotta remember we've never done 
We did an unaged whiskey early on. I remember. Your first thing, right? And we loved it. And we loved it. But the market spoke. And it wasn't about the quality of the spirit. It It was, again, it was just one of these things where people didn't, they didn't have enough education about it. They didn't. They kind of didn't want to like it, mm-hmm. I think. Even though you, if you got it in somebody's mouth, it would not sell on the shelf by mm-hmm. itself. But mm-hmm. if I did a tasting at a store and people tried it, I'd sell bottles because they would see then that it was something enjoyable. Um, it was always for me, I always had this cognitive dissonance about it. It always irked me a lot that, because the other thing is unaged whiskey is the way whiskey was drunk in this country and, and even in Scotland. Uh, and other whiskey drinking nations for for far longer in the history of whiskey drinking it was mm-hmm. unaged as mm-hmm. opposed to aged. But well, it was kind of the maritime trade, right, where the whiskey would be put in barrels and they'd burn them to get the pickle smell out and then fill it with booze. Well, in the United States, it was about westward expansion. Mm-hmm. If you wanted whiskey in California in 1860, you know, there really wasn't an infrastructure for that out there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was coming from the northeast or from the southeast Mm -hmm. and it was going across you know just like the people it was going across the continent in the hot summer over the prairie and a shaking wagon and by the time that whiskey got to california you know if you didn't like brown whiskey that tasted like wood yeah you weren't drinking whiskey because that's all they had right Uh, actually in scottish whiskey was uh aging of scottish whiskey as a result of phylloxera because the phylloxera uh the the blight of phylloxera uh wiped out not just all the the wine grapes, mm-hmm. but the brandy grapes. So the drink of the upper classes in Europe prior to the phylloxera outbreak was like brandy, yeah. cognac, and armagnacs yeah. and stuff like that. That was an that was known as an aged whiskey for a long time, or sorry, an aged spirit for a long time. Mm-hmm. But whiskey was not something people waited. It was a lowbrow drink, right? Uh, you know, for those people up in the mountains, you know, up in the highlands, you know, that was not something that that a distinguished gentleman would would offer to somebody in their home. Mm-hmm. But for want of an aged spirit for that period of time, they were like, oh, all right. And the Scots canny. Canny uh, business people that they are were like, ah, let's bottle this up and sell it to these right. wealthy pricks. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and yeah. they found themselves in industry. But huh. um, that's very cool. Yeah. So anyway, the NH our, our unage rye was great. It just wasn't, um, you know. I still have people who who ask me about it. Uh, had it had its devotees, but um, but yeah, when we hit the ground with an aged whiskey, we wanted it to, you know. Have at least a, the straight designation, that mm-hmm. two-year uh, designation. And I love these whiskeys young, you know, and I think that because of our other processes, direct-fired stills, wild fermentation, the floor malting aspect, all of these other processes, and, and in addition to the fact that we're using 100% open-pollinated heirloom varieties of Hudson Valley grain, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of other layers of flavor and, you know, dare I say, terroir or, yeah, or no, provenance, if, if such a thing can be said to exist in a whiskey. Um that the age, it's like, yeah, it's great. I'm excited to see what happens as they get older. But do I need to rest my hat on age? Mm-hmm. Not at all. No, I don't think so. Not at all. No. You know? And um, that's one thing that the big distillers really can't say. Because their new makes are pretty insipid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and really the aging is, is where all the qualities that we're talking about are really, are really borne out. The, the high ABV... Um, you know, the high barrel entry proof mm-hmm. elicited flavors from the oak. So, yeah, you're still going to get all of those great fruity esters and stuff from the wild fermentation. And, 
and the qualities of the grain themselves and the direct fire caramelization that happens in the still from the direct right. fire. That's and you do you do uh, you do a couple of three days of, of open top wild fermentation before, almost before you oh, before you pitch yeast. So oh, we do yeah no we do two, we do uh, roughly forty eight hours of. Uh, Open well, the whole process is open right. for the whole week long fermentation. But before you but, introduce a strain of yeast, correct? Yeah, so we're allowing inoculation. What I do is what we call I call it half wild, mm-hmm. um, because uh, to allow a fully wild fermentation, that you know, even I have my threshold for things that are just like that's just that's too crazy, you know. Well, it's super unpredictable. Right? It would be too unpredictable. I would say it's a 50-50 shot. Mm-hmm. I would say. One mash will produce a beautiful mash that ferments out, dries out, you know, and, and is, is worth distilling because it got to 7 or 8% ABV in the mash. Mm-hmm. And then the next one's not going to be any less wonderful or delicious or interesting, but it might not have gotten to the yield that would make sense to burn the propane to get it distilled. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. so, uh, um, so we initiate fermentation with wild fermentation. So we uh, force inject whole air into the mash for 24 to 48 hours that simultaneously will cool our mash down and it's also directly injecting all the wild flora and bacteria and stuff into the into mm-hmm. the mash and then we'll start to see the evidence of fermentation wild fermentation occurring at that point we'll pitch a very uh, mild traditional ale yeast english ale yeast that we use um commercial English strain mm-hmm. that is speci- that we specifically selected because it it doesn't really offer a lot of an ester profile. Mm-hmm. It's it's to produce a fairly grain-forward beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also not designed to get you an incredible e- ethanol yield, but wh- where we want it, seven to eight mm-hmm. percent is, is a good is a good ABV in the mash. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, because we want we want to make sure we're getting the ethanol we need, but we don't want the yeasts the pitched yeast's character to overshadow the yeah, wild yeast. Yeah, and some of them can. Character. You know, like that crazy banana yeast they use in Beaujolais Nouveau or the, the, mm-hmm. that, that uh, honeydew melon thing they use in all the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc where it really just overpowers and gives the wine a, a flavor that those grapes do not actually have. Right. The uh, What's the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? Is, uh, is, that the, is that the cat pea and gooseberries one? Yeah, I think yeah. so. <laughs> but is it, so it's, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's great that you're, you're, the yeast kind of gets out of the way of everything else and just does its job. Yeah, and then we're doing a week-long fermentation because we do want to have because you remember the the standard uh, industry standard for fermenting a mash, a whiskey mash, is two days. Mm-hmm. So any major distillery, um, and even craft distilleries, it's they're just doing a two-day fermentation, and it's usually a closed system, um, and they're going to get because again, what they're focused on is the ABV. Mm-hmm. What we want, we're actually going to lose a half a point to a point of ethanol on the back end because what we're looking for in a week is acetobacter activity mm-hmm. on the back end of the fermentation. Acetobacter is a bacteria mm-hmm. that doesn't consume sugar and turn it into ethanol. Mm-hmm. It consumes, it consumes alcohol. alcohol and turns it into acetic acid and mm-hmm. additional flavors. It's the it's the uh, the bacteria responsible for producing balsamic vinegars. Yeah. And, and oh, uh, that, all the, those jars in the corner of my dining room right there. Oh, really? Yeah. My homemade vinegar, yeah. Um, and so that is a whole other, that's all. So like you get this bright, little, v, this little VA yeah, qualities. All of, those, all of those characters, characteristics are going into our whiskeys as well. And you can't get that unless you're going for that week-long 
uh, fermentation, and and you're willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. that measure of your hard-earned, you know, uh, ethanol. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, that's the whiskey. That's the product. So we're we're losing product in order to additionally enhance the flavor of the mm-hmm. whiskey. So um, because you we touched on you know ale yeast and the fact that you're you're making essentially a type of beer prior to distilling. Um, how did how do we connect the dots then from you getting seriously into homebrew, deciding not to be a journalist, and then you ending up distilling in uh, new, outside of New Ponce? So, yeah, I had a sort of a epiphany one day. It was after the it was in two thousand eight. I remember the day. Mm. It was a few weeks. After like, I don't know, it was like some major things that happened. I was a financial journalist and uh, the housing crisis thing. Mm. And well, yeah, 2008 was an interesting time. Tumbling, to exactly. Journalist. You know, so uh, you know, it, was a, it was a moment where I was you know, on the phone talking to people who were uh, telling me about how they were going to get rich on this thing. And I was like, wow, I got to get out of this. Mm. And just started thinking and trying to figure out what else I could do with my life. And the only other constant that I had that seemed vaguely translatable into a uh, career was brewing. Mm-hmm. So I had it in my mind that I would um, become a brewer. Mm-hmm. I'd also had a variety of experiences in agriculture, you know, um, working on small farms outside of D.C. On the, in the summers. I worked for American Farmland Trust, which is a, a, a um, farmland preservation uh, nonprofit mm-hmm. uh, based in D.C. for a while. So I, I, I developed a real... Affinity for farming, which, you know, for a boy from Queens slash North Jersey was, you know, about as alien as the surface of the moon. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, you've always, I mean, I remember you posted a little while ago um, some some throwback pictures of your, your walking the full Appalachian Trail. Right. So, so that was the first part of my little sort of like... And that's where Americana and nature Mild kind of... breakdown. Yeah. So I, I quit journalism. Yeah. I, put, I sold almost everything I own, put everything else in storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, packed a bag and I hiked the Appalachian Trail for six months. From and, uh, Georgia to Maine. Georgia to Maine. And then when I finished that up and I had some time to think on my walk. Yeah, a little bit. Six months of walking. It was great. And um, decided to... Well, I had this vision. It was a farm brewery. Mm-hmm. And this was before there was a farm brewery license class or any of these things that yeah. happened in yeah, New yeah. York or, or really there was no notion of this sort of concept yet. Um, so I was a real pioneer there. But yeah. it never actually happened that way. So I came back from the trail and I said, well, there's two things I need to do. I need to get some real serious experience farming and Mm -hmm. then I need to get some real serious experience as a commercial brewer. So I spent a year outside of Troy on a farm, Mm -hmm. working on a farm there. And that was great and really sort of developed some agricultural experience. Not really small grains, but, you know, I just needed to learn more about growing and soil health and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then I had a friend who had moved to Chicago the previous year, um, had a place I could crash while I looked for a place. And he was just like, there's all kinds of breweries out here. So I went out there and just kind of begged at the door of a few breweries until one of them finally let me come in and sweep the floor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I made myself indispensable enough that they had to hire me. (laughs) So I worked, it was called Metropolitan Brewing Uh in, uh, in Chicago and worked there for, you know, just piecemeal off and on for uh, for a couple of years, moonlighting and doing some other things as well, mostly retail. Mm-hmm. And then just plotting my my trajectory back to the Hudson Valley, which I had settled on as being where I wanted to, to make my farm brewery. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, next door to uh, Metropolitan Brewing, um, 
they since changed locations, but uh, we shared a building with a small craft distillery called Koval, and uh, one of the early craft distilleries in the movement. And I, on my lunch break or whatever, I would just pop over there sometimes and be like, I, I love whiskey too. I'd love to learn more about whiskey making and distilling and stuff like that and sort of started delving into that. Um, wound up getting a little hobby still and doing that whole thing. And then through the home distiller message boards um, of the time, I met this guy, Angus, mm-hmm. who was from the Hudson Valley. He lived here and he was trying to get a distillery off the ground. And he was very generous with his knowledge about yeah. distilling. And, I remember talking to um, him. He, he had a, a, lot of, a lot of information, right? At, uh, he is old, one of the you know, classic polymath. Yeah. He's one of those guys who knows a lot about everything. He was not afraid, was not afraid to tell you no. everything he knew. He was good company, though. He's I mean, a good, good guy. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, just very generous with his knowledge. You know, we kind of became pen pals and, and spoke on the phone and he would tell me, try this, try that. And we had very similar sensibilities about weirdness and, and, uh, and idiosyncrasy in food and drink and, and regional distinctiveness and all those kinds of things. And the more I delved into distilling, the more interested I got and the more I found it was to my temperament, you know, and, um. I found that I preferred it over, over brewing. Mm-hmm. So I wound up then jumping over uh, a student of the folks who ran Koval, um, went on to start his own distillery just outside of Chicago in Evanston, and um, that was Few Spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I worked at that distillery. I jumped over to that distillery and started working there uh, for a little less than a year when Angus called me and was like, hey, this distillery is actually going to, we're going to make this happen in the Hudson Valley. I've got some investors and, and partners. And if you want to come back and do this with me, you're welcome to. So I gathered up my fiance at the time and dragged her on a hope and a prayer back mm-hmm. to, uh, to the is Hudson she from Valley. Chicago? She's from Indiana, yeah. but she, she was, she lived in Chicago for several years. Yeah. And, I met my wife. She's from Evanston actually. Oh, all right. I know it well. Um, so you came back and, and you had that, um, he had found that, uh, the former printing shop where you are and where we were. Yeah. The original location in, uh, in West park. Right. And, um, yeah, so the, the location was secure, uh, but it was just a raw space at the time and, uh, had to clean that out and prep it for our very <laughs> scrappy bare bones startup, uh, level mm-hmm. where we just, we had two. Uh, we still have those stills and still use them, 200-gallon simple direct-fired stills. And um, Originally, we were just fermenting in open-top barrels, you know, so we just took some uh, some 50-gallon barrels and pulled the tops off and, mm. and did our first fermentations and distillations from there and worked on recipes and techniques. And, you know, a lot of what we were doing, I actually I would say most of what we were doing and continue to do, Everybody who we'd met in the industry told us was absurd. It's like there was nothing that we wanted to do. There was no there's no one that we sought advice from on how to do what we wanted to do that didn't tell us not to do it. Mm. We want to malt our own grain. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? You can't do that. We want to use direct fired stills. That's absurd. We want to do wild fermentation you'll ruin yourself. You know, why would you do that? And the answer to all of those questions was, well, because it's interesting. 
And because that's how whiskey was made for hundreds of years. Well, but it also it, it also allows you to fine tune a lot of the flavors that you're looking for. I mean, the floor malting allows you to bring it very carefully to the place that you want it in terms of the sugar development and the, the degree of sprouting, I assume. Um, I know that the direct fired stills allow you to get into some Maillard flavors that mm-hmm. otherwise you just can't achieve, but you do risk burning. So you have to be more diligent, vigilant, you know. Yeah, running, there's no manual for, well, there's no manual for almost everything that we wanted to do. I mean, we, we poured over every old text we could find um, about the nature of distilling in the 1800s, you know. Um, that was largely where we were drawing the most useful information. There was older stuff from like 1700s available, but that <laughs> you, you start going into those sorts of documents and first of all, you're scratching your head trying to understand yeah, but the argot of the time. Poetic, but they're not recipes. Exactly. They you know, anything. it'd be like, first find <laughs> one good hogshead. Yeah. You know, it's like, all right. You know, once we got into the, you know, Mostly a lot of Scottish distilling texts from the uh, the late 1800s, mm-hmm. many of which are still germane to the industry in Scotland. Mm-hmm. They did modernize to a great degree, but not to the degree that, that the industry modernized in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we always say that then we just kind of filled it in with the frog DNA, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like from <laughs> Jurassic Park. So we found as much as we could yeah. that made that 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 was clearly explained in the literature but there was a lot of gaps, and we filled in those gaps by looking to existing uh, and continuous traditions of spirit production uh, that didn't change it, but weren't necessarily whiskey. And we looked to see what they did, how they accomplish it, and said it couldn't possibly be much different than the way they did it. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, one of the one of our biggest influences. Uh, is single village mezcal production mm. because that is one industry that continues uninterrupted from its earliest days yeah. to the current day. Mm. Nothing has changed in the way that they produce single village mm-hmm. mezcals, or mm-hmm. almost nothing. I mean, they might have electric lights at the distilleries right. at no, the Palenque but, they're, now, still but the they're still doing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, and that's all very analogous because uh, to, to the way we do it, you know. So they 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 roast the piñas to again effectuate the enzymes and create a, you know, because the piña itself is a starch ball, there's no sugar. So like malting, they have to undergo this additional step on the substrate to make it into something that will ferment. So that's analogous. They use open fermentation. They use direct fired stills. So it's agave, it's not grain, Mm -hmm. but the process Well, it's also subtropical, so there's a ton of wild fermentation happening, whether they want it to or not. Certainly, yeah. Um, So, but to go to, to, to what you were saying a minute ago, I would actually contra- I would I would say it's it's much the opposite. It's not so much that what we're doing is allowing us to control things. Mm-hmm. That's actually the the industrial perspective. Uh, what we're doing is allowing the allowing the the whiskey to dictate the terms of its own creation. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not we're not creating this hermetically sealed environment with very specific specific objectives. I would say that today, after seven years now of, of, of making whiskey in the style and perfecting the techniques that are largely there, our techniques are largely to get out of the way of the process mm-hmm. by which the Hudson Valley expresses itself through whiskey. Mm-hmm. We now know what that's supposed to taste like. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that. We didn't know what true Hudson Valley whiskey was supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. And we learned that through trial and error. 
you know. And just because something is traditional or handmade doesn't necessarily inherently give it a pass as good. And right. We had a lot of failures early on. Yeah. or a lot of things. Like originally we thought like, sure, we'll just do a straight up wild fermentation. And we realized that that wasn't going to work. Um, no, I felt for years that... that Eating or drinking local should not mean taking one for the team in terms of quality. Yeah. Because it's about pleasure, first and foremost. It has to be. It has to be a celebration. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of doing penance because you're trying to lower your carbon footprint. But that's not sexy in any way. Right. Uh, right? So it has to be like, holy shit, this is really good. Yeah, I just don't, I don't feel like... living here. You know, and in the spirit... You know, we always say we're doing things in the spirit of... You know, we're not like a slavish sort of... Uh, di- you know, just perfectly devoted to uh, the way it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, we call ourselves heritage method. We pick these words specifically. We say heritage methods, not mm-hmm. traditional methods, mm-hmm. because it is a broken tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, prohibition eradicated, you know, whole typologies and styles of whiskey yeah. that, had been, that had been cider and, and probably, you know, other... I don't know if you can if you could turn it into booze in a place somebody did yeah you know so there were probably all kinds of interesting traditions of of, uh, of spirit and cider and wine production that were eradicated because of prohibition in this region and all we can do is is try to pick up the pieces and find our way back on that path however circuitously we 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 have to mm-hmm. when you go down a path making something like that, making a whiskey like that, and find that it's unpalatable, mm-hmm. the thing you can say is, well, surely that wasn't what they were drinking. Mm-hmm. They drank a lot of rye in New York. Mm-hmm. They made a lot of rye and drank a lot of rye in New York, Pennsylvania, and Maryland before Prohibition. Yeah. I doubt that this is why they were drinking that much whiskey. Right. So, <laughs> so let's you, start again. Go back and you make know? some different well, decisions. Exactly, until you get to something that occurs in that as a result of those processes, but that is delicious. Mm-hmm. And once we found that, we mm-hmm. said, well, is it exactly what they were drinking? Mm-hmm. Probably not, but it's probably close. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to do. Good. Because it's good. Yeah, uh, it is good. Yeah, it's inspiring because, I mean, I've been, like, I, the first thing I wrote about you, I think it, I did a survey of the state of distilling in the Hudson Valley back then, which was not long after you guys had gotten up and running, you know, and you were, you were really just doing the raw rye and you were doing a bunch of the fruit brandies. Uh, it was a mixture of R&D and I think you had something for sale, but I don't remember. Um, but that was a pretty long time ago. So just... Um, you know, going back in my mind to when I first met you versus, you know, what you're showing me now, this is a remarkable achievement in not that long of a time. And, I mean, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you have something fairly instrumental to do with the fact that there is a cooperage industry in New York State now. Do you know? Yeah, well, I don't know that I would take any credit for there being, I mean, to the extent that there are, I think, three, maybe four cooperages. Mm-hmm. In New York, uh, the fact that we uh, guided and helped develop the first of them. Um, so I guess that a quarter of the industry, the Cooperage industry in New York, uh, certainly has uh, our stamp on it. Uh, then, yeah, I guess we can be said to be credited with it. Yeah, we, we, we found a craftsman who was game to develop uh, a... A cooperage, a whiskey cooper, whiskey did, barrel cooperage. Did you find him on the road with a sauna on the back of his yeah, truck? Yeah, Angus, he... Angus saw him and flagged him down on the road. We So this guy, uh, his name is Bob Hockard. Uh, it's a U.S. barrel company. Mm-hmm. Um, 
up in the Adirondacks, he made saunas mm-hmm. in the shape of barrels. Okay. So he made um, what's called, and we learned a lot about cooperage as a result of, of working with him and developing his concept. That's what's called slack cooperage. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's a it's a barrel that's really more for dry goods as opposed to tight as, cooperage. A, as opposed as opposed to tight cooperage, right? So you know, you could fill this barrel, you could fill a slack coopered barrel with nails or hardware or, or other small go- you know like beans, yeah. something non fluid. Um, and it's its own art, mm-hmm. and so he was he was a slack cooper, and he applied his skills to making these giant, you know, man sized uh, barrels that he fitted as saunas. Yeah, there's one actually near my friend's house, uh, west of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. I drive by it when I go see him. Okay, so yeah, house. so we saw him making delivery of one of these. Uh, he was on nine W in the sometime in the winter, uh, you know, man, five or six six years ago. And, uh, yeah, Angus was just like, Jesus, did you see that? And this is, you know, blazed after him and uh, flagged him down and started questioning him, like interrogating him. Where's that from? Did you make that? He did make it. Can you make whiskey barrels? Mm-hmm. And, with, you know, with that roadside conversation led to him actually developing that Amazing. concept out and, so cool. uh, and us bringing the first uh, bourbon, the first whiskey of any kind uh, made from... Not only 100% New York grain, but aged in 100% New York oak. Yeah. That's why we call our bourbon Excelsior, the yeah. state motto of New York. Right. You know, the notion of uh, ever upward yeah. and the elevation of, of New York terroir and whiskey. Totally. Um, I had one other question, which was the, uh, I wanted to find out, like, um, you know, how your your quest for certain types of land race corn is going. Like, are you breeding? Are you, have you focused in on a few varieties now on your, on the farm? Well, again, that was one. Of, that's one of these things where we sort of let we we initiated something and then we kind of let it run itself. So mm-hmm. our approach toward developing what you could call a land race variety, it might. I mean, if you if you dug deep into the into the term, it might not technically be a land race, but it's a it's a cross pollinated uh, mass of corn or you call it a variety for better mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. What we did was we took eight different varieties. We selected eight different heirloom corn varieties, and we mixed them up, Mm -hmm. and we seeded them in our fields in the first year. And they grew and interpollinated, cross-pollinated with each other. And every year we plant that corn. We harvest most of it for use in our whiskey, in our bourbon or our corn whiskey. And we go through and select the finest specimens, just literally walking through the, the rows and pulling the biggest, you know, most beautiful ears. And we shell those by hand and save that for a seed piece. And so every year what we're doing, we have a 75-acre certified organic farm in yeah. the shadow of Bonacue Crag, which is also the name of the, uh, the rye that you're drinking mm-hmm. now. Yeah, which um, is delicious. Which is part of the, the Shongam chain shonga uh-huh. mountain range which is actually the the, the <clears throat> northernmost little tip of the adirondacks that is uh, no not the adirondacks it's, it's actually the, I'm it's sorry, actually the, the, appalachians. the appalachians so yeah, yeah i always i always quip sometimes that we're actually technically an appalachian distillery yeah um but uh it's um what we're doing is we're successively planting this year to year and allowing the corn to self-select mm-hmm. amongst those varieties cross-pollinating with each other and we're going through and picking the best examples and then replanting those every year. So 
the concept here, the theory is that over the course of time, this will turn into something like its own variety, mm -hmm. specifically acclimated not only to the region, but to our particular yeah, piece yeah, of yeah. land. I notice when I save seeds in the garden, especially from something that I haven't mm -hmm. grown before, by year two or three, it's a, it's a different animal. It's really, it's much happier. It's much more robust. It matures faster. It's it really, they, they do adapt yeah. to, to your tiny little area. And will and we'll change in terms of the character of flavor that they mm -hmm. offer. You know, I always had this sort of, always tried to work this puzzle out in my mind about what a local, for example, what a local tomato really was. Mm -hmm. Is a local tomato just a tomato that you grew locally? Or is it a tomato that has developed its character because it has successively been grown yeah. here locally? Well, like what the guys at the seed library are doing, which is fantastic yeah. work. And they really are adapting things to yeah. this area. And they go years before they bring it to market because yeah. they want it to be sort of fully, like you said, acclimated. Yeah, because if you're just taking California tomato seed and planting it in New York soil, yeah, there's no real you're really just growing a California tomato in mm -hmm. New York. So that was, you know, we could buy in all this heirloom seed from the Midwest, it's good seed, you know, mm -hmm. it's good corn, but is it New York corn? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it is, but it's like, it's, it's like the motto of the state, Excelsior, ever upwards. You right. know? It's like, just because my other whiskeys are not aged in New York oak doesn't mean they're not New York whiskeys, but with our bourbon, the spirit of that notion of Excelsior that we try to live by is yeah. like, we're always trying to push it. We just, it's like, how can we make it more New York? Mm -hmm. How can we make it more indicative of the character of the region? Um, and hopefully make it more, and, and, and also more delicious and more yeah, compelling. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the sort of sine qua non. Um, and so what's, uh, do you have any plans for, you know, new product lines or other, any big, big news, like things coming up the pike? Yeah, well, so in a couple of weeks, we'll have our first ever release of the Excelsior bottled in bond. Mm -hmm. So that'll be a four-year-old version of the bourbon bottled at 100 proof. Last year, we introduced the um, bottled in bond version of the Bonnecue Crag straight rye malt, mm -hmm. which is 100% malted rye. And then, and, you know, so our standard Bonnecue Crag rye is two years old, uh, 96 proof. The bottled in bond by law has to be 100 proof and four years old. It all comes from the same distilling season. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this year, we introduced the single barrel concept so we have another mash bill of rye so our our standard rye mash bill is 100 percent malted rye which mm -hmm. is again a throwback it's kind of an outlier in the rye category there's very few examples of of malted ryes on the market um, again a pro pre-prohibition pre style that that kind of just never really resurfaced after prohibition mm -hmm. uh, our single barrel mash bill um is more of a is more of a standard high rye rye. Mm -hmm. um, and all of our ryes, for the most part, are also, they also conform to the New York uh, Empire rye category of right. whiskey, which um, I could talk to you a little bit about as well. Right. But um, the single barrel is something that we do on, either only in our, we sell it by the bottle in our tavern and tasting room, uh, and it's sold to specific accounts mm -hmm. um, who, who buy on a whole barrel. But that's an alternate rye mash bill where it's mostly unmalted rye. So it's going to give you... So the difference between malted and unmalted rye is interesting. There's commonalities, but when you're malting the grain, which is sprouting the grain, you're fundamentally changing its chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and 
rye is usually associated with what they call rye spice. Mm-hmm. And so in a conventional rye, where you're, you're dealing with unmalted rye, rye spice usually translates as um, sort of savory spice notes or cooking spices, you know, more like cracked white pepper or mm-hmm. allspice. Um, that's sort of like tickle your nose spice. Uh, whereas when you malt rye, that spice is converted into more of a baking spice mm-hmm. range of range of flavors and aromas. So more cinnamon, mm-hmm. nutmeg, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so those characteristics are. It's nice to kind of be able to show those side by side um, because you can really see. So for example, the Bonnacky Crag Straight Rye Malt is 100% malted rye, and this particular single barrel expression that I brought is effectively 100% unmalted rye. Hmm. It's it's actually um, it's 90% unmalted rye to 10% malted rye. So mm-hmm. it's still 100% rye. It's mm-hmm. just that most of it is unmalted. Mm-hmm. And you will tell immediately that the difference between malted and unmalted is huge. Yeah, it's very, very different. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's almost, it's much more narrow. It's less expansive. Um, it's, it's, I think, equally beautiful, honestly. It's honestly, this one drinks, it tastes like aromatically. Flavor-wise, this one is much more has a lot more of a kind of a wine experience to it. Interestingly mm. enough, it's got it's got a I don't know if it has it's if it is more acidic, but it tastes more like I said, it has the focus of like a like a an interesting um, yeah it has it has this sort of acidic focus of a sort of a riesling or sort of a northern white mm-hmm. wine. Yeah, I would say definitely much more. I don't know. More angular mm-hmm. as opposed to round. Yeah, I think yeah, the the, the malted ryes are very lush and like yeah. voluptuous. Yeah, which is unusual yeah. in my experience for rye because you know as you were saying most of it isn't malted and, and it tends to it tends to sit on that some often somewhat one dimensional just kind of peppery spice mm-hmm. note the way bourbon sits on that caramel note and just right. kind of def- that's the defining thing. This has just an extraordinary amount of nuance to it. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Oh man, this is great. Well, thanks for coming, man. I really appreciate this. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, and hear about all the you know all the really uh, careful and hard work you've been doing. <laughs> but it's paying off, right? I mean, it's it's going well. Yeah, we try to make interesting things for people who are interested in interesting things. Yeah. Um, we got a lot of cool things happening with Empire Rye this year. Yeah, yeah. So what's where, a, you have? How many people are in the Appalachian now, as it were? So there were six of us originally, and then one. Uh, well, I'd say seven of us originally, and uh, now we've got about a dozen available on the market now from the original uh, founders plus people who signed on early. But this time, two years from now, there'll be at least twenty distilleries around the state producing an empire that's fantastic that's a real thing it is we've got i mean i i I will quip sometimes that in terms of the number of individual distilleries actually producing the style empire rye is more legitimate than tennessee whiskey wow you know now obviously tennessee whiskey includes jack daniels which makes more whiskey than all of the empire rye producers in like a day yeah, than yeah, we will all much. combine produce in a year. Yeah. But but still, still again, we're talking about... We're only talking about... Yeah, Tennessee Whiskey's only got, what, two or three producers. But we're all... Statewide I mean, the, the name of the game in so much of what I'm talking to people about, almost uh, irrespective of what sector of the food and drink world they're in, because I'm covering a lot of ground, it's diversity. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and so like having a lot of small producers working carefully to me is much more interesting mm-hmm. than just having one or two juggernauts. Well, know. and the other, the fun thing about Empire Eye, the exciting thing for me is that there's a lot of conversation internally in the industry about this notion of terroir or provenance in whiskey and whether it's a thing, mm-hmm. like, is it something that can actually be quantified or determined or, or said to exist at all? And when I'm asked this question about Empire Eye, well, what are you seeing in terms of terroir? Is there a, is there a terroir with, with Empire Eye? I said, well, it's too early to tell. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But here's what I can say. If terroir and whiskey is possible, you, you can only discover it through something like Empire Eye, mm-hmm. where we actually made a mandate. It's got to be a minimum of 75% New York State grown rye to qualify as an Empire Rye. So it's like... You can't make a determination about terroir if you don't have multiple producers pointedly utilizing a majority of a regional agricultural product. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's like there's no, if that question is going to be answered, Empire is our best chance of discovering it. Yeah, no, it's, it's really it's exciting. But I think, I mean, look, as far as that question is concerned, I mean, if you take scotch, again, I am, I'm far from a scotch expert, but there are, there are, definite distinctions between the different appellations, regions, whatever, mm-hmm. different towns, proximity to the ocean, um, smokiness of the peat. I mean, there's, there's, to me, there's a huge amount of, of very specific regionality in mm-hmm. Scotch. And so I don't see any reason why there wouldn't be here, too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's your, your hunch. I mean, you're hedging now because, like, it, if we're only just getting that's started our, on this. But, that's our guess, yeah. you know. Um, we have a huge advantage in New York because of the farm distillery license class that most of the distilleries are, are utilizing. So we sort of were, the farm distillery license class allows us to have a, a, a host of benefits, um, very desirable benefits, as long as we're using a minimum of 75% New York state grown product for all of our distillates. Mm-hmm. So when we developed the Empire Rye concept, you know, we were basically, what we did was we just said that 75% has to be rye, mm-hmm. New York State grown rye. But because we had that limitation on us anyway, because of our license class, it wasn't really a big leap for us. So I say our, our limitation was our advantage. Mm-hmm. Because in other states where that limitation and its attendant benefits were not there to motivate you to, to do that anyway, getting... Six and then 12 and then 20 and possibly more distilleries to actually agree to to limit themselves in that way mm-hmm. without having already done so yeah. would have been very difficult, if right. not impossible. Right, so it was you kind know. of built in. But I found, I mean, you know, we were talking about that, that, that drawing, you know, back when I was an artist, even though the work I made was, you know, is super busy and, and information dense, um, the initial conditions I set up for myself, the, like the guardrails, are very close together. I gave myself only a few parameters that I was mm-hmm. able to kind of work within because I find that minimalism fosters creativity. Having too many choices just makes my brain kind of go limp. Mm-hmm. And I, so I find that, that, that it really matters to have limitations because it spurs creativity and allows you to get into granular details, whatever you're doing. And yeah. really understand the difference that one decision makes, and I think that's where quality and real like beauty comes from. Yeah, honestly. it's like it's like jazz. Yeah, you know, it's like you need you need a head. Yes, you know, you need the you need head. The chord changes, underneath. right? Yeah. You need that, you know, so that you can't you can't have a Love Supreme solo without a Love Supreme structure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's really cool, man. That's really cool. So yeah, thanks again. This Thank was, you. Man. This was a treat. 
Christopher Williams, coppersea.com, Coppersea Distilling on Instagram. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, acookblog.com if you want to contact me. Music by my son Milo Barrett, smilob.com. Thanks for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, rate five stars, all the things makes a big difference. Uh, And thank you very much for listening.